Beloved congregation of the Lord, please turn with me again to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Well, it is the sort of time of year when people make various resolutions. It's a bit of a break in the calendar, a bit of a break in the routine, and it's a time of reflection on the year past and what may come in the future. And so it's a custom in our society to think carefully about our lives. If our lives should go on as they have in the past year, would that make us happy or Sad? Would it increase misery or bring joy? And so if we would know ourselves and um, have a bit of introspection, we would say that, well, in fact, there are things in my life that if, uh, if they go on, they're actually going to create a great deal of misery. And if remedied, and if, if I could see the fruit of that and, and see with clarity that if, if I could change those things and get these things right in my life, well... And in a month or a year or 10 years, well, the, the benefits of that will, will be evident. And so we make resolutions. We say, yes, we're going to get a hold of ourselves. We're going to be ruthless with ourselves. Things will change. And yet we know from past experience and, and often hard sorrow that it's one thing to make a resolution, another thing to follow through with it. And perhaps there's exercise machines in every uh, house of Canada that have been purchased with the best intentions and then sit languishing. And we can multiply the examples of failed resolutions. But it's also the case in the spiritual sphere. We are sad to say there are those who would make a commitment for Christ who either would give their lives unto Christ by profession and say, I'm going to live for him alone. And yeah, the subsequent event proves that, in fact, it is just words. Or you can have someone who is a true believer and, and they can see that they're backsliding, they can see that things are not right, and, and so one day they say, I'm going to recommit my life to the Lord. I'm going to take seriously his claims upon my life and I'm going to remedy the things that are amiss. And that's especially the, the sort of thing that Paul, I think, has in view where he speaks here in verse 15 with this word, henceforth. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And rose again. Henceforth, looking ahead to the future, there is to be this great break and change. But it's interesting, uh, um, the sense of the English translation has a more future oriented 
look to it from now on. However, in the Greek, it's, it's a bit more retrospective. It has more of the sense of never again. But however way you would take it, the idea is the same. A resolution, a change. And would it be that God would give us grace today to really grapple with what kind of resolutions we really ought to make? We didn't need to wait until the beginning of the year, but isn't it the case that it's now as good a time as any to recognize what things are not right and to live as the Lord would have us to? Well, let's consider what we have in in this verse 15. And let's reflect uh, again upon this theme of the constraining love of Christ, but now with, uh, with these thoughts that flow from especially what is here in verse 15. First, not living to yourself. Not living to yourself. Second, living to Christ. And third, serving the church, not living to yourself, living to Christ, and serving the church. Obviously, the two verses are very closely connected, and I was almost tempted to deal with them together, but I think that uh, there's such fullness here in the truths that I think it was warranted to take two sermons. But Look with the flow of logic here. Take verses 14 and 15 together. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So you'll recall that this constraining that we are speaking of is that which is a mighty spiritual influence upon the life. You are compelled and pressed down by the revelation of the love of Christ in the gospel to live as a Christian, not in your own strength, but rather by the grace of Christ working in you. But it is through the judgment rendered in the mind as the truth of the gospel is pressed home. This is what is being spoken of. And if verse 14 is unfolding something of what those truths are, that Christ has died in the place of his people and purchased their salvation, then verse 15 is, rather causing us to consider what it is this constraining influence will actually look like, how it will be manifested, how it is that the Christian ought to be so directed in their life. And it's, it's almost uh, too simple on the surface. Like in these brief words, There is an eternity of truth. There is an entire manifesto for the Christian life. We can't plumb all the the depths of the riches that we find here, but let's at least come to see something of what Christ can work in the heart and the life of a believer. In the first place, not living to yourself. 
and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Now here we have, in a negative statement, a bit of a portrayal of each person in their fallen condition, each person by their nature, as those joined to their head, Adam, they live like unto their rebellious father. And they live with this as their prime motivation, living unto themselves. Or to put it personally, it is this which is held forth as that which we must flee from, that which we must put to death. You must cease living for yourself. So it's going to the motivation, that which you are striving for. You know, of course, that with anything in life, you have goals, you have motives, and you're not liable to hit anything that you're not aiming for. If you want to get married, you have to prepare and seek that Objective: If you want to pass your exams, you've got to, to make that your, uh, your care. You can't be dawdling and, and waiting for the day before the exam. No. If you have an objective, you have to try to meet it. And we can multiply the examples. But what is it that the natural man is aiming for? Well, he's aiming for self. All the issues of life, all the things which govern his daily activities, They're aiming at this, self, self. And what are are we to make of that? Well, it's, it's one thing to say this in general and say, yes, the sinner lives for himself. And we can think of many different examples for this. You could take, for example, the person living in sexual sin. This would be an example because we're, of course, a society awash in sexual depravity. And you have things like homosexuality celebrated and transgenderism separated and having sexual intimacy outside of marriage, cohabitating with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. These things celebrated. Even the terrible perversion of pornography, increasingly normalized, scoffed at, seen as no great thing. And what are we to look at that? Of course, all these things are abominations. All these things are are greatly heinous and despicable. But what are we to, to really attribute that to? Why is it that the, God, that the God of heaven speaks so strictly? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt rather strive for purity. Why, why is that? Well, because the converse, the inverse of that commandment would be seeking of self. You have your sexuality, and what do you use it for? Is it to the glory of the God who gave you your sexuality, or is it rather towards your own gratification? Well, to to say it is to answer it. It's very obvious that all sexual sin has this as its root. It's not merely the sexual sin that is at issue, but the idolatrous principle at work. You will seek to gratify what it is that you want, and that is your own satisfaction at the expense of what God says is good. And of course, are these things 
Are these things contradictory? Is it the case that if you really live all out for God and, and the Lord would give you that opportunity to express sexuality and marriage, that that would, would not be very fulfilling, that you would not have great satisfaction? Well, obviously, to the contrary. God made you to enjoy such things in the way that he is appointed and two is glory and it's it's when god governs such things that they are the most beautiful and enjoyable but but you won't achieve that which is truly delightful if that is what you are aiming at god won't accept any competitors if you would make an idol of this and it will all turn to ash and poison in your mouth. There will be nothing, nothing left of you but that idol of yours, even of perverse sexuality, which will devour you and destroy you from eternity. Or you could take something else, money, money. Here we have what the Bible calls the root of every manner of evil, that uh, God of mammon, as the Lord Jesus referred to it. The striving after stuff, the anxious cares over money, the nickel and diming of every every transaction, and the and especially the the anxiety that comes from wanting more and more, never being satisfied with what you have, that lustful heart that goes back to a covetous spirit condemned of course, by the Ten Commandments, and which leads to a life of, of endless dissatisfaction because you can never have enough. And what are we to make of that? Well, doesn't that not also go back to this principle of living for yourself? It's self that wants money. Self that wants this material possession or that uh, physical need met. It's that which governs you. And what, what is it that you find? You find that self is a very harsh master. That self is never satisfied. Self is always cracking the whip and saying, you can't be satisfied with what you have, not with what the Lord has given you. You need more and more and more. So it is. Living for self as motivation. But of course, people are not just motivated by sex. They're not just motivated by money. There's other expressions of this living for self. And perhaps the one that is the most strictly condemned and often rebuked in the scriptures is more of a self-righteous self. The one who actually uses the things of religion and the holy things of God, not as a means of showing love towards the Creator and Redeemer, not as a means of manifesting true holiness and godliness such that we lay down our lives for others, no. But rather, it can be about inflating one's ego, feeling self-righteous, tearing down others, making ourselves the, the standard of all things, using even 
holy things and divine things in order to exercise power and control over others, doing so in a most cruel and hypocritical fashion, doing so in a way that leads to abuse and to to great hurt among even the people of God. And of course, the devil doesn't care. Does not care whether it's the depraved self or the greedy self or the self-righteous self. What really matters to the devil as long as self is on the throne, as long as self is the idol, and all is well. That soul is safe and on the way to the, the place of all damned souls. Self. Self, if we cannot slay this terrible ogre of a master, then there is no hope whatsoever. If there is not a death to self, there cannot even be the beginning of spiritual life. Yes, we know that the Christian groans under the remnants of self, that old man, yet clinging unto us. Yet, bringing us back to those old desires and passions. But with the Christian, there is this difference. That indeed, you hate and abhor self. That principle of the flesh that would seek to tear God down from his throne and place yourself in its place. Something else I'd like to say about this in this connection And that is something that I think bears thinking about. It's not just the motivation that is wrong for the life that's lived to self, but it's also a deficiency in worldview. Now, what do we mean by worldview? Well, it's not so much a biblical term, but it is a biblical uh, concept. And that is where you would rightly apprehend the truth of the Scripture, which is the very voice of God spoken unto you, that you would come to see that it impinges upon everything of life. That God, who created all things, has also defined the meaning of all things. He is the source of all things and the goal of all things. And so if you would think of anything in your life, anything, even the smallest detail, the, the most narrow slice of the pie, that part of your life that you would think, well, surely God doesn't have a claim there. If you would think about any of that, you would have to recognize that biblical truth and indeed the crown rights of King Jesus do have a claim upon that. It's been well said, there's not even a blade of grass that Christ does not point to and say, mine. And it's kind of like you would think about uh, those people in the olden days who said that the earth was the very center of the universe if someone were to come to you today and say, well, I, I just think that the earth is the center of the universe, that all things revolve around the earth, you would say, well, haven't you studied the latest science? You see, there's very good reasons for saying that, in fact, the earth is not the center of the universe. But, of course, that distorts everything, doesn't it? It's not only laughable, it's, it's actually very deficient. You're not going to get that space shuttle off the ground if you have an entire cosmology or worldview that's wrong. Likewise, if you would try to live with yourself at the center, with yourself as the center of your worldview, if you would make man the measure of all things or of anything, and precisely to that extent, you are departed not only from the truth of God, but of reality itself. 
You've been rendered the fool so often condemned in the scriptures. There's not only a deficient motivation and a deficient worldview, but let's bring it all back to what it really is. It's a sinful heart. That's what we read together um, on uh, the New Year's Eve service, right? Those words from Genesis 6 and verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why is it that man is a slave to self? Why is it that he's so irrational and foolish in his worldview? It all comes back to this. The suppression of the truth and unrighteousness because the very thoughts of the imaginations of his heart are corrupted with enslaving sin. Look at this, congregation. Look at living for self and all of its ghastly, hideous, despicable portrayal that we see here in the Scripture. And let us, let us be done with it. Let us be truly done with it. Is there any pleasure to be found in living for self? None which lasts, none which is true of the name. Why will you lie in the midst of death? Consider rather what is held forth here in this passage. That he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Living not to yourself, living rather to Christ. You know, my favorite systematic theology was written by a Puritan named William Ames. And he had a very interesting definition of theology. It's actually how he begins his, his book. He says, theology is the doctrine of living to God. See, William Ames, he was frustrated. He was um, an Englishman who was serving in the Netherlands. He was one of the advisors at the Council of Dort, one of our Confessions is the canons of door. And William Ames was frustrated by some of the things he saw at the University of Leiden, where he was serving as a professor of theology, because all these people who are studying these great books and, and getting deep into the scripture, they would go out and they would live their lives in drunkenness or in worldliness, or, or just their whole spirit was one of spiritual coldness. It was not a fiery and a great love for Christ. And so he said, no, away with all these views of theology. I want a theology of living unto God. Any theology that doesn't bring us to that place of living unto God or living to Christ, then let us see it as the worthless straw that it is. What does it mean to live to Christ? Well, I think we ought to see it as a change of motivation. A change. You think of the old motivation of living to self. Well, what would it mean to change from that? Put that old man to death and to live unto God and living unto Christ. Well, it means that rather than seeing puny you as the center of everything, that rather you come to see that God is at the center of everything. He is the one you must live for, and you must live for his son, whom he sent into the world, who is the mediator between God and man. 
You would come to see that he is the one who has died for you, purchasing you with his very blood. And that for that very reason, he who has purchased you has every claim to every part of you. You are not your own, but you belong unto another. You are a slave of Christ. And so it is your motivation. It is your goal. It is your aim to live unto him. And so you would take, for example, your time. Your time that you spend on different things. You'd look at the day that you have. These number of hours for sleep. These number of hours that are awake. This number of hours working. This number of hours in idleness. This number of hours in speaking or eating or whatever it is. And you would subject everything to this very simple question. Is this what Christ would have you to do? Is this the will of Christ for your life? And so if it would be the case that you would come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I look at the past month and I haven't had a single day where I have been alone by myself in the scriptures. I just don't have time. No time whatsoever to set aside for reading God's word. So I would just simply ask this question. Okay, look at all the time you have and tell me honestly that of all the time that you have, every moment of breath that you have in a day, that there's not even 30 minutes, not even an hour that you could find in order to meditate on the scriptures, to take a chapter, to take even a verse, and to open up and to think this is Christ's will for me. I think if we were unsparing of our excuses, we would see that in fact there are things that we do that are utter waste of time. That if we would really live for Christ and he is the Lord of our time, we're going to find opportunities to commune with him in his word. Not only in his word, but in prayer. In prayer. And so we would we would ask this question as well. Let us say there is an opportunity to pray with others. An opportunity, whether scheduled prayer meeting or another opportunity to get together with fellow believers to, to really pray with one another. You're going to weigh what is the value of prayer relative to everything else that I'm doing. Or... We could take uh, this as, as an example. We would consider our work, how it is we speak to others, how it is that we go through all the routines of our responsibilities. And we would ask ourselves, are we cutting corners in our work? Are we being uh, easy on ourselves? And as a result, we're passing on expenses to our employer or we're passing on uh, burdens towards others or whatever it is it's not adding up to a good witness for christ or even take this example you're at the the coffee table and you have an opportunity and some and the conversation sort of shifts where you might be able to actually speak something of the gospel 
And because there's, there's fear in your heart, rather, you decide to, to rather speak about something of a, of a non-spiritual nature. Well, even in your work, don't we see that there should be something of living for Christ? But let's take even this example, and I'd like to, to really, really focus on this, and that is in the family, in the family. How is it with our families? Of course, some of our families are small. Some of our families are, are at different stages of life. But each family is precious unto God, and it is the life of the family which should be showing forth spiritual fruit. Is it the case that the heads of the homes are governing their homes according to the word of Christ? Is there a spiritual care towards using that authority for the spiritual good of the members of the home? In the marriages, is there communication Is there love and tenderness one towards another, speaking with affection and gentleness and respect, but according to the roles of the head of the home and the helpmeet, each one according to their different responsibilities and callings? Among the children, is there a godly submission towards parents? and a godly care for the parents, for the children. Is there in the homes a care for the worship of God? Is there even a single home that ought not to have regular family worship? Is there ever any excuse for saying, tonight we are too busy, tonight we need not worship God together? Or is it rather the case that if we live for God, and also the family will be governed by what it is that Christ has commanded. All these things, they go back, don't they, to the basic question of worldview again. You're not liable to take all of these different domains of life under captivity to Christ if you do not really think about Christ's claims on life. And you can multiply all the different examples Christians, I fear, have often been uh, indoctrinated into an idea that there is anything outside of the claims of Christ. Even in the area of politics, I fear that often this is deficient. You know, I remember I was talking with one of the uh, members of parliament who voted in favor of Bill C-4. And I was talking to him on the phone. He agreed to talk to me. And he had all sorts of excuses for why he would not vote against it and, in, and indeed uh, supported the party's decision to push it forward in unanimous consent, this bill that will make it illegal to call homosexuals to repentance. And at one point I asked him, look, which, which comes first, political party or allegiance to Christ? And he's a confessing Christian. We said, well, it's an easy Easy answer. Well, it's allegiance to Christ. But then you look at what he did and didn't do, what he said and didn't say, and it all amounts to excuses to not stand for Christ. But is it so wonderful that a politician should do that? Is it the case that Christian voters have often been this way? 
that we have been hedging what our real convictions are. If a politician would come to us and say, what is really important, would we say, well, what's important to me is the honor of Christ. What's important to me is the word of Christ. What's important to me is that Christ be served in every area of life. I don't think that's really what Christian voters have been saying for a long time. So shall we wonder that the politicians don't care about the honor of Christ when, if we're being honest, even Christian voters and even those in the, in the professing church have not given much care to this. I speak to myself. I speak to each one of us. If, if we would value Christian churches, if we would value Christian seminaries and schools, and we ought to see that the reason we value those things is because Christianity is true, because Christ is Lord. And if Christianity is true, then Christ is Lord, then Christ must be Lord over everything. But of course, it's not just a question of motive or of worldview. It goes back to the heart again. It won't be the case won't be the case that you'll be able to stand for the lordship of Christ if your heart is not right. Someone will come to you and say, this is what the word of God says. You must do this. And what will be the response? Yes, but. Yes, but this. Yes, Christ has spoken, but there's, there's, there's this reason I, I, can't, I can't quite live all out for him. I can't quite give him that much control, that much loyalty, that much reverence. But it ought not to be congregation that goes to our hearts. It goes to hearts that are not yielding unto the gospel, the gospel of a Christ who died for rebellious sinners, that they may be set free from the tyranny of self. Let us be done with self. Let us live unto Christ. But in the third and last place, it's not just a not living to yourself and a living to Christ, we see, but also serving the church. And for this, I'd like to uh, cause you to notice something if we'll look at verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Do you notice that each one of these statements, he's not just talking about himself, but he talks in the plural. He embraces with him all of the elect church. The love of Christ constrains not me, but us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, and that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. It's all of the church that is comprehended here. And why would he say that? Well, if you remember in the sermons that we preached in the fall, we talked all, a lot about how Paul was striving with these Corinthians. And he was defending his own conduct towards them. Back in verse 9, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. And I trust are also made manifest in your consciences. 
But we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you might have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For your cause. His love for Christ and his living for Christ, his devotion to Christ, his being constrained by the love of Christ, It brought him to this point. He had to lay down everything, his reputation. Even at the cost of being misunderstood, he is sincere and genuine. He contends for the souls of the Corinthians because he loves the church of Christ. Why? Because one died for all. If you love Christ, you will love those for whom Christ died. You will love the church. And I was thinking about this. Can you imagine what would happen if you walked up to a man and insulted his wife? Said, well, I think you're a great, upstanding fellow. I think you're great. And then you would turn to his wife and you would say something rude and offensive. Well, let me tell you something. If someone came into my house and insulted my wife, they would not be there for very long. And yet very, very often, we can get away with disrespecting the bride of Christ. Very, very often, there will be those who claim to have a great love for Christ, and yet there is very little love for the church. Paul loved the church. He loved the church enough to criticize the church when she was in sin. And he wept for the church. He labored for the church. He spoke truth to the church, and he didn't forsake the church. And so let us bear that in mind, congregation. Show me someone with love for Christ, and I'll show you someone who loves Christ's bride. Someone who doesn't just have the eye service going on, but a genuine service unto Christ will mean that we love the church, that we will desire to build her up, that we will desire to exhort our fellow believers, that when there is a believer who is cast down and sorrowful, well, we are the ones who go and pay a visit and make a phone call and take care of, uh, of those whom Christ died for. We are those who care for, even for Christ's little ones. The weakest of Christ's lambs are those for whom the good shepherd has a special and tender care. And if we would claim to love that good shepherd. And may it be that we would have that same tenderness. Let us have hearts that embrace all men, but especially the household of God. Let us be those who do not lightly consider anything that would bring disrepute unto the bride of Christ. Let us labor for her sanctity, for her growth, for her well-being, and for the honor of King Jesus Christ. Amen.